If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Ephesians, and let's go to chapter 5. Uh, we want to pick up our study in verse 1, and Lord willing, take it to verse 17. We're looking at this topic. Are we true followers of Jesus Christ? Now, let me just give you a little introduction quickly. Uh, back in Ephesians chapter 4, the last verse, verse 32, Paul tells us with these words. Listen to the encouragement. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus, he forgave you. And so the Apostle Paul has been insisting on this type of love through the chapter, particularly in last week's verse. This type of love is called agape love, agapeo love. It's not a love of compassion or a, a love of your neighbor or a love of your, even of your parents. But it's a love of God. It's divine love. We find it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so that love comes into our hearts and now we desire to love others likewise. And so Paul has been sharing with us concerning this Christian walk. We looked at the word walk last week. It's the manner of my life, the manner of your life. It's my behavior as a Christian. It's your behavior as a Christian. How do I walk in Christ but as I'm led by the power of the Holy Spirit? And so Paul's been encouraging. We need to make this separation from certain sins. And he's going to deal with them again. It's evident to me that the church at Ephesus was struggling through some of these sins. And here we are, 1,900 plus years later, and the church still struggles with these things. But we're to make this separation. We're to walk in the newness of God. And I'll admit to you, just like you will admit to me, it's not easy. Because the world is out there, and the world wants to take us back. But how can we go back? when we've tasted of the Lord. And so Paul comes into this portion. We want to deal with, are, are we true followers of Christ? Now, if we are true followers of Christ, we need to make that separation. We need to work at that separation. And so he begins here in verse 1. And it's a small verse, but it's so deep when you think about it. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. The word imitators, we understand to imitate somebody. If you have a King James, it says uh, followers. But if we look at the Greek word to imitate, it means to mimic, to mime, to follow, uh, to copy, to be like. Paul says follow God, imitate God, be like God as dear beloved children or offsprings of God. I, I like the word Christian. But listen to the connotation of Christian. Am I truly Christian? I like the translation, basically, I'm a little Christ. But I know I'm not Christ. You know you're not Christ, but I represent him. In the book of Acts, in chapter 26, verse 28, Paul, speaking to the church there, ministers to a king by the name of Agrippa. But listen to what Agrippa says. King Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuaded me to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's no record in history that Agrippa did come to the Lord. But imagine that ringing in his heart and his ears and his mind the rest of his life in hell because he's saying, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. But it did not take place. And so to be a follower of Christ is to be like him, to imitate him. I want to be more like Jesus. You should desire to be more like Jesus. We live in a time in a society, and it got to the point where all the little girls wanted to be Britney Spears. And then all of a sudden, this uh, Hilton girl comes into the picture, and everybody wants to be like her. And then we see the problems that they're having now. And those of us of the 60s, don't raise your hand, but how many of the guys wanted to be like Elvis? And then the Beatles came into the picture, and everybody was, you know, the Beatle hairdo. I hated the Beatle hairdo. <laughs> but we mimic. Look at the kids. They, you know, everybody's wearing the jersey, the number of that particular, uh, you know, fella. We want so much, so desperately uh, to be. We want to be like Jesus as a Christian. It is so important. We need to follow him. Back in 1965, if any of you know the background of Calvary Chapel, that was the Jesus movement. And Mary and I didn't come in to the ministry until the 70s. But the Jesus movement, I mean, it flipped some kids totally around. But if you go back and look at some of the old pictures, look at some of the old video and such, and everybody was trying to be like Jesus. Everybody had the long hair and the long beard. And, and, you know, it's just there was a guy named Lonnie Frisbee, and they looked at him, and, I mean, he looked like Jesus. And so they wanted to be like Christ. What about us today? Now, I'm not telling you to go grow some hair. Some of you can't anyway. <laughs> but we need to be more like Jesus. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Last year... Mary and I went to Southern California. That's our home and such. And uh, I have a nephew. His name is Joshua. He's about 26 years old. And after he got out of high school, he, he had this dream. He still does. He wants to be, uh, you know, in Hollywood. He wants to be in the, in the arts. He, he loves to sing. And uh, he loves to dance. And he loves comedy. And he gets into all these things. So I happened to ask the wrong question. I said, so Joshua, what are you into, man? He works construction, basically. But he took off to the room, and then about 10 minutes later, he comes back, and there he is. He does this number at me. He's got Spider-Man outfit on. And I'm going, man, Joshua, you're 26 years old. Oh, I do this on the weekend. And he does. And he goes out and does birthday parties and such. And, and, and here's his kids. I, I, he's got two kids. I go, hey, what do you think of your dad? Ah, uh-uh, Spider-Man. And they're calling dad Spidey. And so we mimic, and we want to be like. And he also has a Batman costume. He also has a Superman costume. I said, don't tell him you're related to us, okay? <laughs> but we want to be like. Well, what about putting on Christ? What about being like Jesus? Compassion, grace, love, mercy. And so in verse 2, he continues, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice uh, to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let your manner of life, this is what Paul's saying, let your walk, let your, 
Your attitude, your actions, your character, your behavior. Let it be filled with love from God. Then love others. That was the command. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. And then love others. And that's the whole key. To follow the example of Christ. He loved us. He loved us so much that he died on the cross for us. I've asked this question, and some of you have, I venture to say, asked this question. Lord, would you have died if it was just me? And you know the answer, yes. Oh, Lord. And think about God sending his son, his only begotten son, to become the mercy seat, to become the propitiation for my sin, for your sin. And so the scriptures encourage us. And then he says, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and offering a sacrifice to God. And what is it that we've given to God? He's asking for you to give yourself to him, to walk in him. Notice verse 3. And Paul gets back into the sin nature if you were here last week in the book of Ephesians. And he gets back into this, this, this carnal life. It's your B.C. days. You don't belong there anymore. He says, but fornication and, and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Don't let this even be part of your life anymore. How can you be a true follower of Jesus Christ if you're still committing fornication? Vine's Dictionary says sexual harlotry. Or if you're still practicing uncleanness, still keeping the mentality here of sexual sin, impurities, immoralities, filthiness concerning sexual sin. Or you're still practicing covetousness, extortion, or greed. These things should not be part of our lives. These sins must not be part of our lives. It's not so mentioned among Christians. These are not fit for a believer, Paul says. Now, Paul spoke from experience because he was very religious, very holy, very righteous, or should I say self-righteous. And there had to be a change in Paul's heart. He continues in verse 4, still keeping this mentality, but he speaks about our speech, and he goes back to this. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor coarse jesting, which are not, again, fitting but rather giving of thanks. How can we be a true believer in Christ Jesus and we still practice some of these things? He speaks of uh, filthiness. In the translation, there is shamefulness of obscenities. Or do we practice foolish talk? Listen to the translation here. Do we still practice silly, stupid speech that does not edify, but it tears down? Or do we practice, and here's a hard one, because I fell trapped to this. Or do we still practice coarse jesting? You know what happens on Monday morning at the workplace? Gather together around the coffee pot. We gather around together at, you know, the water hole, if you say. And all of a sudden, what'd you do this weekend? And then things come up. And then somebody might bring forth a, a dirty story or a dirty joke and such. And it takes a man of God, it takes a woman of God to walk away. I was in the workplace for 16 years, so I understand. I, I see it. Oh, and you get blasted for it. I used to walk away. As soon as you can hear the innuendos coming, you know it. 
And you have to make a stand. And you get rebuked for it. Oh, you think you're too good. You think you're better than us. But you have to walk away. It got to the point when the guys started the stories, they would say, Bob, you better leave. And so they recognize God in you. But sometimes we stay and sometimes we listen and sometimes we participate. It is not fitting for you. That's what Paul is saying. It's not proper. It's not Christ-likeness. And especially when the guys are degrading a woman. Or a woman, in some cases, are degrading the men. Well, this and that. Be careful with the dirty stories, the dirty jokes, etc. Listen to the living translation out of verse 4 because it really speaks it clearly. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not fit for you. Instead, let there be thanks, thankfulness to God. Let the Holy Spirit to lead your vocabulary, your voice. And if any of us struggle with that, be open to God. Tell God. Go to James chapter 3, and we mentioned that last week, and see how he speaks about the tongue. This little member of our body that can create a forest fire. And you remember last week we shared these big, huge horses? They put a bit in their mouth, and they can control them. You ever seen a Clydesdale up front? They're massive, massive horses. Yet the Bible says they can be controlled. A ship, a huge ship, can be controlled by a rudder. And yet this tongue can cause a forest fire. These things should not be part of our lives. Look at uh, verse 5. He continues now. For this you know. In other words, Paul's saying to the church at Ephesus, you should know these things. You've been taught these things. That no fornicator, nor unclean person, nor covetous man or covetous woman who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There must be separation from this church. Separation in my life, separation in your life. Should not be part of us anymore. Egypt represents the world. Babylon represents the world. And why is it sometimes? The scripture says we're like the dog that wants to go back to its vomit. We're like the pig that's nice and clean and washed now, but he'll go back into the miry pit. You see, for too many years, I called myself a Christian Sunday morning. But Monday through Saturday was my time, right? That's not what the Bible says. And so Paul says, for you know these things. You know these things. And he speaks of some strong sexual sins again. You practice this uncleanness of sexual sins. But then he says, idol worship. And see, I used to respond to that. Well, I've come to saving grace, and, you know, I left Catholicism, and, you know, I don't worship Mary anymore. I don't worship the saints and such, but an idol is anything that takes the place of God. So we have to be very careful. I remember we didn't go to church at all for, for months and for sometimes years. But boy, if I'm going on a trip, my mom would send me with, with a statue of St. Christopher. And we would actually pray to the statue. Some of you might recall this as, you know, a Christian. I would lose something. I hated it when I lost something. Mom, I can't find my keys. I remember this vividly. My mom said, pray to St. Anthony. What does he have to do with it, Mom? And I would always find my key. See, St. Anthony did it. She always brought that out. 
Anything that takes the place of God becomes an idol in your life, in my life. Those that worship God, we're told in Scripture, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for uh, because of these things the wrath of God comes unto the sons of disobedience. Notice Paul's encouragement. Church, let no one deceive you. The best translation here is let nobody cheat you with empty words. When people tell you, or or you can even tell yourself, you know, this is just an old book. This is fairy tales. Come on, Jonah in the belly of the great fish. Come on, Jesus feeds 5,000, and then he feeds 4,000 with just a couple of fish. Come on, Peter walked on water. Yeah, I have some swampland for you. You know, we respond to that. Deception so easily sets in. And we become uh, children of disobedience. Children of God's wrath. You see, there's a lot of people in the United States of America that claim to be Christian, but they don't believe this is the infallible word of God, the inerrant word of God. There's tons of people that believe they're Christian, but they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the born-again experience. They believe you, you know, get water baptized. That's all you need to do. And so there's a danger out there. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Not all that say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of God. I recently read a beautiful story, and it's going to fit here perfectly. Let no one deceive you with empty words. A young seminary graduate took a pastorate in a big city church and was quickly challenged by a mature, well-educated, financially set gentleman who frequented the church just to mock it. He had gone against the pastor before this young man. He had gone before the pastor before that one. His whole purpose was to ridicule. His whole purpose was to mock. And he quickly came to this new graduate as he took this pastor. And he asked the young preacher, what do you have to say to me about God's word? And before the preacher could say anything, he responds to him. And he says, because I don't believe in the infallible, inerrant word of God. He said exactly what scripture says. And the young preacher just thought for a second. And he responded to him with these words. With such great faith, he gave it to him. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. You're asking a question, and then this young preacher gives you that? Well, the man responded. He walked away shaking his head, smiling, snickering, murmuring under his breath, appointed men unto death. And just the mockery, and then the judgment, just the mockery. But something happened to this man. He couldn't handle those simple words. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. This kept chewing at him from the inside out. He wasn't even recalling Hebrews 9, 27, but he just kept hearing. It is appointed unto man to die once then the judgment. And then he kept hearing, then the judgment, then the judgment. He was tossing, he was turning. 
And when he got up in the morning, he quickly got ready and he went down to the pastorate and he knocked at the door and he says, what must a man do to be saved? The Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of him, yet he didn't believe in the word of God. And he was trying to mock this young preacher. God's word will not come back void. Be careful when people try to deceive you with empty words. You know, it would have been very easy for the preacher to sit there and to dialogue and to argue and to bring out his theology. And this man had all the answers because he'd done it before. But he gave him that one verse and, and that was it. It's all it takes. You do what you need to do quickly and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. How many times when you've left a service, be it here or somewhere else, and then the Spirit of God has spoken to you clearly, and it just so happened that you've been asking about a certain situation. Years back at Calvary Chapel in West Covina, uh, my wife and I, we took my, my sister. She was living with her boyfriend. And I mean, she was in sin and she knew it. We would tell her with love and compassion and grace. And we invited her to church. She went. Pastor Raw started preaching. My sister's crying through the whole service. After the service, she's mad at me. You called that pastor up and you told him everything about me because everything he said from the pulpit was me. I says, I don't even know Pastor Raw. We had a huge church at the time. And I mean, I very rarely saw him. And if you did, it was just high and by. But it was the Holy Spirit that spoke to her. Thank God, years later, her and her boyfriend, now they're married, serving God, going to church. It's good. And sometimes they have to be told. Notice Paul continues. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Have nothing to do with them. The Bible says we're not to fellowship with those that are in sin. Do not participate, the word that speaks of here, with these type of people, nor have anything to do with their theology, listen, of the world. That's not what the preacher meant. That's not what the Bible meant. And so they give you your, their theology, that is. Back in Genesis chapter 39, one of my favorite passages, there's a young man by the name of Joseph. And Potiphar's wife, she wants to lie with Joseph. And she sets it up so perfectly. And she gets a hold of Joseph and tries to lure him into the bed. And she says, lie with me. And he literally took off and the garment was left in her hand. Joseph ran from sin. Therefore, do not be partakers with him. Sometimes, church, we have to run from sin. I used to read testimony after testimony about men that struggled with alcohol because that was my forte and I read about a gentleman that used to uh, go home after his salvation same route and he would walk about 16 blocks but at the end of the last two blocks there was this uh, pub he said and he frequented that pub every day but he comes to saving grace now and so he walked about, you know, 12 blocks. And then he crossed the street, and then he walked the rest of it on the other side, and then he would get to his block, then he walked back. And somebody asked him, why do you do that? He goes, because I am weak. It was a heavy, you know, driven street. 
And so when he was on the other side, it didn't allow him to cross over. And that's the way he fought the battle. You say, well, he's weak. That's right. Well, he needed to go across the street. That was a crutch. That's right. If you've ever struggled with drinking, you know, you go by a bar, you go by a party, you go by, and man, it seems like that Budweiser bottle's going, come here, Bob. I want to talk to you. It's just a natural thing. I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, and all my friends came over. Where were you last week, I said. <laughs> That's the enemy. Let it go. Therefore, be not, be not partakers with them. If we're true followers of Christ, there has to be this separation. Now, verses 8 through 14, Paul goes through this walk in God's light. You see, we were in darkness, our B.C. days. We have to come out of darkness and come into the light. And so Paul speaks about this. Look at verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and just hang there. We're going to read the verses together. But I'm going to give you this verse first. In John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says he's the light of the world. And I was always comfortable with that. But then when you get to Matthew, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. And you are also the light of the world. And so in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have light of life. Again, I know that Jesus is light. But we know that Jesus dies on the cross. We know that he's buried. On the third day, he resurrects. We know according to the book of Acts, there's a 40-day post-resurrection. And then we know that Jesus ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us. And then he leaves us these words. You see, the light has gone into heaven, but now you're that light. Because he's come into your life. So Matthew 5, look at verse 13. This is part of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But he begins with salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown. Listen to what he says. Out and trampled under the foot by men. You become useless. Now, salt was very important. We take salt for granted. If you go to the supermarket, basically, you know, a container of salt's pretty cheap. But there was a time and a place in the ancient world, salt was such a commodity, uh, it was part of finances. You traded as money salt. And so salt was looked upon. Very precious in ancient times. Salt was used for flavoring. It still is. Salt was used for preserving. It can still be used for that. Salt was used for healing, medicinal purposes. Salt was used in religious ceremonies. And then here in the passage of verse 13, salt was used to make pathways. When the salt would lose its power in a sense, it was cast into the way and men trampled over it. I like what one old preacher said one day. We're the salt of the earth, but some of us are only good to be trampled on. And it makes sense. Listen to what Jesus says now. 
verse 14. Well, let me mention this. In the Old Testament, uh, the church, the saints, shared their salt with you. It spoke of hospitality when somebody came to your house and you shared your salt with them at the table. It was considered hospitality. And again, we take salt for so, so, so much for granted because of its abundance now. But look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. He's speaking to the disciples, to the body of Christ. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. We understand light. Light is basically the opposite of darkness. Darkness is sin. Jesus comes into my life, into your life, and he places his light. And I should be a light for others. If you know what a lighthouse does, it was for the ships. As the ships were coming in, they could see that light and they had a focal point. So important. People should see your light. I had a beautiful, beautiful friend named Steve that shared with me back in my work days. He's still a precious friend to me. He has, he has a ministry in Southern California. He pastors a church. And when Steve came into my workplace and they put him under my uh, command, I was in charge of him and others and training and such. And, you know, Steve was just a great kid until he started sharing with me. And I loved him and I hated him. I like what he shared. But then he would tell me, Bob, you need to get saved. Saved from what? I've been water baptized. I made my communion. I'm confirmed. I even got married through the church. What's your problem? And yet the Holy Spirit began to prick at my heart. And I loved that young man and I hated that young man. Because the light of Christ, it shone through this man. We should attract others to this light. You ever been camping and you, uh, you, you, know, you make a, a fire? We used to go to the beach quite often, and we'd make a big fire, you know, the marshmallows and, you know, the hot dogs and such. And it always amazed me, and if there's, it's kind of bug season, what draws a moth to go into the fire? And then he gets there, and he's, oh, look at that, zap, he's gone. But we should be attracted, listen, to that light. We should be attracted to that light. He finishes it off, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let them see your light. Too many times we become, listen, secret agents. We don't tell people about Christ. Let them know what God done in your life, what God is doing in your life. We should be a witness. We should be a testimony just with our walk. Look at verse 9. He continues. And he, let's go back to our text. And he simply says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, if you're taking notes in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he begins with the first fruit. It is love. But here Paul just simply gives us these three. For the fruit of the Spirit in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. This light which 
is Christ in you produces fruit. It produces good fruit, righteous fruit, true fruit. Paul calls goodness, righteousness, and truth fruit of the Spirit. Beautiful place to be. Fruit comes forth in your life. I would encourage you to do a study in John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. There, the beautiful teaching by Jesus, and he speaks about uh, abiding in Christ. If I truly abide in Christ, if I'm a true follower of Jesus Christ, fruit's going to come from my life automatically. He speaks of fruit uh, 40, 60, 80, 100 fold. That God would see my fruit, but also others will see that fruit. Or I'm still dabbling in the things of the world. Notice verse 10. And I like this little verse here. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So what is Paul saying here? Listen to his encouragement. Find out what pleases the Lord. The things that I do, the things that you do, do they please the Lord? If I'm still fornicating, does that please the Lord? I don't think so. If I'm still in the sin of covetousness, which is greed, does that please the Lord? No. Last week we spoke about, you know, lying. We spoke about cheating. We spoke about stealing. Does that please God? The answer is no. And so Paul's giving us some insight here. He says, find out what pleases the Lord. Listen to this verse. In Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. And this is a, a prayer for, for my life. This should be a prayer for your life. In verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. This is Enoch's testimony. He pleased God. I like that. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come on, enter into the kingdom of God. You please God. That Enoch please God. That's my desire. That should be your desire. Then he says, how, well, how am I going to please God? Listen to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe, that's having faith, that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The book of Romans teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God desires that I please him, that you please him. And I'm going to please him when I have this faith that leads me and guides me into all truth. You see, faith in my life pleases God. Obedience in my life pleases God. Our love for him pleases him. And then when he sees that I love others... It pleases him. My Bible says one thing, basically, to me. Obey God. Obey God. And he will bless you. I live by that. I believe strongly if I'm obedient to God, he has no alternative but to bless me. Obey God's word. He's going to bless you. Oh, there's times you go through trials and tribulations and you're convinced God's left you. The Bible says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He uses trials to speak to our hearts. He uses trials to chip away the old man, the old woman nature. 
In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that God chastens those that he loves. If you're like me, I say, Lord, you've loved me too much. Too many trials. They just keep coming. We have people in our fellowship that are going through hardships right now. And they love the Lord. The pain that happens. What about God the Father? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He knew exactly what was going to happen to his son. And so trials are there. But do I please God? Do you please God? Listen to verse 11. Let's go back to our text. And again, we have to make this separation. If we're true followers of Christ, have no fellowship. Listen, with the unfruitful, we spoke about bringing forth 40, 60, 80, 100 fruit. Now he says, have nothing to do with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose the darkness. The word fellowship here is not koinonia, but it's a different Greek word. And it says, have no participation with worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Have nothing to do with sin. And yet we're sinners saved by grace. We have to run from sin. Again, there's Genesis 39. We should be rebuking sin, basically. But so many times it's easy to get back into that situation, whatever it might be. Again, we need to be like Joseph when we need to run from sin. We need to come to that place where we should detest sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in the Lord long enough, though. When I sin, I know it. The Holy Spirit reveals it to me, and it has to be confessed. Now, look at verse 12. If we truly desire to follow Christ, Notice what he says. For it is shameful even to speak, listen, of those things which are done by them in secret. By them in secret. It's a shame to speak about the things of the ungodly. The things people do in secret chambers. Let's bring it to our vocabulary today. The things that are done in nightclubs, the things that are done in parties, the things that are done in the things of the world. Seems like we gather around the water hole at work or the coffee pot at work, and it, it's so easy to get involved in, in listening to what they did this weekend. Wycliffe, in his commentary of verse 12, radical, I loved it. He calls, verse 12, this public discussion of secret sins. He calls it the communion of sinners, as contrasted with uh, scriptural communion of saints. In other words, our speaking should always edify the Lord and always desire to build up the body of Christ, not to tear it down. And in our country, in our society, when a pastor falls, and if he's well-known, if he's a televangelist, it's all over the newspapers. Yes, the man did wrong, but boy, everybody runs with it. And that's the secular world. The church is just as good. In fact, we're all guilty. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about this one? It should not be. 
So Wycliffe says communion of sinners as contrasted with scriptural uh, communion of saints. Look at verse 13. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. When sin is present, that's what Paul's saying, the light will expose, oh, it'll reveal sin. The light of Christ makes clear how evil things truly are. If you're taking notes, in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, listen to what Moses says. If you do not do so, he tells the children of Israel, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and your, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, there in the context of Numbers chapter 32, God's given the land to the 12 tribes. And God says, Moses, tell them, just be obedient to me. And that's what God desires from our life, obedience. Obedience, and I'm going to bless you. But if we sin, know this, your sins will find you out. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews uh, takes heed to Numbers chapter 32, and he says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Don't raise your hand this morning, but have you ever tried to cover your sin? I have. Your wife asked you something and you covered up. Your husband asked you something and you covered up. We try to cover it from our spouse. We, we try to cover it from our children. We've heard that term. You know, we want to put it under the rug. And here's this flat rug and all of a sudden we put whatever we put under the rug. And there's this mountain now and everybody trips over it. What's that? I don't know. That's when you try to shove it under the rug. God knows me and he knows you. You might be able to hide it from your spouse. You might be able to hide it from your children. You might be able to hide it from the church. But how can you hide it from God? In Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man, whatever a woman sows, that shall he or she also reap. But there is a, a beautiful psalm that I love and at the same time I hate. Psalm 139 is called the all-seeing eye of God. He sees everything. He sees everything. Again, I might pull the wool over, uh, you know, my wife, your wife, your, your children, your husband, whatever it might be. You might fool them. And you go, all right, I got away with it. But the all-seeing eye of God says, Bob, I see you. Oh, man, conviction comes. Give it to God. Confess your sin. Now look at verse 14. Before I read it to you, uh, it's a controversial verse. They can't find it in Scripture. They can't find it in all writings. They, some of people even believe it was part of uh, an old hymn that no longer uh, is sung or written about. I don't know. But everybody tries to figure it out. Let me read it to you. Verse 14 says, therefore, he says, and Paul obviously is quoting, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So it's in reference to what he's been speaking of. But if you want to run with this, there are commentaries that said, well, this is from Isaiah 26, verse 19. Now, I read it, and I don't think so. Another commentary said, no, this is from Isaiah 60, verses 1, 2, and 3. And again, I read it. 
I don't think so. Some ancient writers thought it came from the lost writings of Elijah the prophet that we no longer have. So I don't know. Another ancient writer said these are the writings of Jeremiah the prophet that we don't have. So again, we don't know. And again, it's an old hymn from way back when. I don't know. I was taught years ago, where the Bible is silent, let us be silent. But if you're looking at the position of what we've been talking about, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Here's my take. And you can put it with the others also. It seems, he's saying this, it's time to awake from sin. You have been dead long enough in your sins. Repent, come to Jesus Christ. He will give you his light. The light of righteousness. The light of salvation. The light of eternal life. You can go on. It, it fits the context, but again, is that what it says? Let's go back and read it. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. We were dead. Spiritually dead. Christ comes into my life. Christ comes into your life. And all of a sudden, darkness has to leave. Ah, I love that. And so Paul's dealing with a group of people that were struggling just as Christians still struggle today. So that's why I asked the question uh, in our text this morning, are we true followers of Jesus Christ? Oh, we all stumble. We all make mistakes. And there's not one perfect, no, not one. And I thank the Lord for his grace. I thank the Lord for his grace. Now we come to this last portion, just a few verses. And so we've been speaking about, are we true followers of Jesus Christ? And so Paul includes now, walk in God's wisdom. Don't walk in the wisdom of the world. Don't walk in the wisdom of man. As we mentioned earlier, don't walk in the wisdom of, of Egypt or the wisdom of Babylon. Walk in the wisdom of God. Have your manner of life, your behavior, your manner of life in a daily basis. Let it be in Christ Jesus. And so he says in verse 15, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, the King James, that's a big King Jimmy word. That's what they would say. Circumspectly. So he's saying, let your walk, your manner of life, be diligent, the word circumspectly. Be diligent. Let it be perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. And he says, not as a fool, not as the unwise, but in the wisdom of God, not of man or of the things of the world. And again, as we've been sharing, obey God, please God daily, and whatever I do, whatever you do, do it for him. Do it for him. And then in verse 16, he just nails it. Redeeming the time, church, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. I came to saving grace at the age of 32, and it frustrated me so much. Because I was seeing all these young kids getting saved at our church. 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds. and 
Oh, they're on fire for Jesus. No care, concern. They don't have wives, husbands, children, mortgages. They just come to Jesus. And at 32, God's tugging on my heart. I said, Lord, use those youngsters, man. Now I want to send you to uh, New Mexico. Oh, Lord. I'm too old. Hey, Moses was a lot older than you, man. <laughs> Redeem the time because the days are evil. Buy back. That's the best translation. Take back the time the enemy has stolen. Why? Because the days that we live in are evil. They're wicked. Look around us. Wickedness prevails. It is so easy to waste time. We need to look for ways to use our time effectively for God on a daily basis. We should desire to buy back the lost time. I put this in my footnote, verse 16. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. That is why we ask this morning, are we truly followers of Jesus Christ? Or do I still follow the world and the standards of the world? Let's buy back the time. Look around us. Look at the ones that are dying before us. Look at our family, our friends, our loved ones, co-workers, etc. And then he concludes here, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't know if you've ever asked God, but what is the will of God in my life? That's a beautiful question. God, what is it that you want me to do? I sought that in prayer, and lo and behold, God sends me out. Sends my wife, sends my children. What is the will of God in your life? I've been asked that many times by uh, people in our own church. Pastor, would you, uh, how do I find out the will of God in my life? And I tell them, seek the Lord. The Psalm 1 man said that he was planted by the rivers of life and that he sought the Lord daily, day and night. He meditated upon God's word. I can guarantee you, you get into this word and you're sincere, God will show you what to do. I don't have to show you. God forbid you come to me, Pastor Bob, I want to serve God. What should I do? Go to China, brother. Six months later in China, you want to kill me. It has to be gone. I can honestly tell you, nobody sent me and my wife here. People often ask, did Calvary Chapel, West Covina send you? I said, no. God did. God did. Because it would be so easy to blame Calvary Chapel, West Covina. It would be so easy to blame Pastor Raw. God's will in your life, he will reveal it to you if we truly uh, seek him. We are not to be like the world, unwise. Don't be unbelieving, un no faith. Don't become like the non-believer. Become as a believer. Understand and know what is the will of God for you, for me. How do I do that? but by getting into his word. I want to read these last two verses to you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul just kind of brings it together with the church at Thessalonica as he's been speaking to the church at Ephesus here. And basically, verses 3 and 4, Paul is pleading that they remain pure 
And today, purity is something that's been thrown out the window. Those of you that have children, teach them about purity. Teach them that their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart for God, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that is holy and honorable to God. Again, we studied about Enoch. You find Enoch back in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Why? Because Enoch pleased God. That's what the book of Hebrews told us. Do I please God? Do you please God? I call myself a follower of Christ. I should have nothing to do with the world. Now the entrapments are there. and We sin. But be careful when I come to Christ and I continue fornication. I come to Christ and I continue adultery. I come to Christ and I continue to lie, to become drunk, to steal. Then you haven't come to Christ. It's just a lip service. But it has to be from the heart. The scripture says if any man, any woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Are we truly followers of Christ? I'm going to challenge you this morning. Maybe there's somebody here. Maybe there's one or two here this morning. They've never really given their life to Christ. Or maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you are in every one of these sins we spoke of. And you continue to be in these sins. You're only fooling, not even fooling yourself. Because the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. So let's see what God has for us. 